Thank you for joining us for another Hagley History Hangout. I am Gregory Hargreaves, Program Officer in the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society in the Hagley Museum and Library. Now, during these Hagley History Hangouts, we like to bring you some of the most innovative research being done using Hagley Library collections. And um, some of that work is being done by Dr. Rebecca Altman, who is joining me today. Uh, Rebecca is an environmental sociologist, an independent scholar and essayist, and is currently working on plastics, both in the environment and in the human body, um, including having published an article titled Time Bombing the Future, How Synthetics Created in the 20th Century Have Become an Evolutionary Force, Altering Human Biology and the Web of Life, published in Eon Digital Magazine. Rebecca, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Let's sort of start with the basics. As a historian, I would find it really helpful if you could explain what an environmental sociologist is and does. What sort of questions and methods do you use? Oh, okay. Um, I mean, I suppose there's quite a bit of, um, quite a bit of overlap uh, in potential methods, um, particularly um, the kinds of questions you might bring to an archive. Um, but um, in particular, I mean, there's many ways to be an environmental sociologist, which is to study the interaction between, um, oh, I have a dog here who's piping up, <laughs> between um, nature, uh, you know, society and the environment. Um, I'm trained as a qualitative sociologist, so I don't work in big population numbers, but um, kind of trained in kind of ethnography, uh, interviewing, um, archival work to really understand kind of that nexus between uh, nature and society. Um, in particular, like, uh, so my doctoral work at Brown, I was looking at the, the history and evolution of the science of monitoring contaminants in bodies. Mm -hmm. So the way um, scientists might look at water or sediment, or, you know, air sampling, but inside, inside the human body. So, um, kind of veins like rivers kind of thing. Um, and so I was looking at that kind of trajectory of that science. Mm -hmm. And um, in particular, I was interested in how communities involved themselves in that kind of science um, as part of their, um, you know, part of their seeking redress and remediation. So mm -hmm. they were kind of offering up biological samples through various kinds of programs to kind of, um, put forth their exposures and to document their body burdens to seek kind of policy or some kind of redress. So I was kind of interested in those questions of science uh, and society. Um, now I'm investigating plastics more generally, kind of where mm -hmm. they come from and kind of their environmental histories and legacies. Um, and um, to do that as a sociologist, I guess, um, I don't know, I'm like drawn by C. Wright Mills, who's a, kind of a early generation sociologist said that sociology is the intersection of history with biography. Mm -hmm. um, and so looking at social forces and individual lives. So um, I guess that's part of my framework for studying environmental issues. Mm -hmm. um, so for me, I'm my dad made plastics. So kind of trying to intersect kind of even my own biography. Mm -hmm. um, into this larger story of understanding the social forces that kind of led to plastics and plastics mass production. Um, My dad made plastic too. Ah, really? What kind of plastic? <laughs> yeah. Well, he worked at Klockner Pentaplast and Polybond, both of which were um, 
uh, manufacturers of plastic sheeting. Sheeting, like mm-hmm. like film or or, hard, or more solid. Uh, more solid. Um, although I, I never saw the manufacturing process, I recall him bringing home pellets of the polymer um, oh. from the manufacturing process. Really? What did your dad do? He made um, polystyrene pellets mm-hmm. <laughs> for getting carbide. Um, in uh, his plant was in central New Jersey, but it was the original Bakelite plant. Um, Union Carbide had bought out Bakelite. So Mm. Bakelite is kind of interesting for being, I call it kind of the breakthrough synthetic plastic. It was kind of this hybrid uh, kind of early 20th century plastic that kind of led from more um, tree-based polymer modified plastic celluloid into the kind of more modern thermoplastics like polystyrene which were fully synthetic anyway this the factory where he worked you know it had uh it had the original brick smokestack up the middle it said bakelite in white letters down the face of it um so it was built during the depression uh leo bakeland himself had helped design the facility um and that's where he made polystyrene out of um for about 10 years and then he moved on uh yeah, had a had a had a different calling. I think after a while. <laughs> oh, that's so great that we have that connection. Did that lead you into your own research topics into history? Well, somewhat. Um, insofar as um, I do come from a pretty long line of industrial workers, yeah. and then there wasn't an obvious path into that type of career for me, and it made me quite wonder. Well, what was this process of industrialization and deindustrialization? that my own family had lived through and sort of as an intergenerational experience. So um, indirectly, I'd say yes. And you you, you write about that? Oh yeah, about industrial history in particular, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You haven't taken the kind of biographical intersect, you haven't intersected the biographical piece? Not yet, although um, maybe book two or three one day. (laughs) Oh, I I will be watching, that's very exciting. Oh, that, thank you for the vote of confidence. Yeah. Um, so what Hagley collections have you looked at to help you explore uh, this story of plastic? And I guess as, a, as an interlocutor between the, the social and the environmental? I mean, I, I have to say, I mean, I will admit I've, I've been a remote or digital or distance user um, of the collections. So I appreciate how much is digitized and visible. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I can say one of the biggest sources of information has been reading DuPont magazine, you know, back, mm-hmm. back issues of that. Um, plastics in general. So, um, so one of the, um, as I was mentioning before we started rolling, one of the most important books on plastics, Jeff Nicolay's um, American Plastics, I think it was originally published. Well, my copy says 97, but that's the softback. So maybe it was before that. Anyway. He uh, is you know, an American studies scholar and spent quite a bit of time at Hagley in the 90s. And so his footnotes is like, is, like, is well, probably a lot like your finding aids. Um, so he worked very extensively with that collection and I rely on him as a secondary source in a lot of my work um, and heavily use his footnotes. Um, I think at the time, Hagley still had access uh, to the Society for Plastics Industry, one of the trade associations documents, but I think those are no longer, um, mostly no longer um, in the holdings, but, um, but so his work is really an important way to capture some of that material. 
Um, but most specifically, I, I go, I've gone in to kind of look at the history of Teflon mm-hmm. and, um, and in particular, I was very interested in DuPont's um, pavilions and chemistry showcases that it hosted at the 1939 and again, 64 World Fairs in, in New York. And so sure. um, I appreciated all of the visuals that are online. So I could really you know, see, see what was done and how mm-hmm. it was organized, mm-hmm. videos and um, one in particular from the 1964 World's Fair that I loved about you know, all the different DuPont polymers. Um, anyway, it was like a cabaret. <laughs> have you seen it? I'm not sure that I have in particular. Right. I will. I'll send it to you. <laughs> well, um, I, I do appreciate you mentioning um, how much research you can conduct remotely in the Hagley collections because our team of archivists have worked tremendously to make a great deal of material available uh, in a digital format. And I wonder um, if you could maybe describe what um, some of the advantages are of being able to immerse yourself, even from a distance, in the Hagley collection. Yeah, well, so for example, um, I wrote a piece for um, Eon Magazine in it ran in 2019 and it's it, in part, it's the story of, um, I mean, it's a story of a kind of the invention of legacy weaving materials. Um, hmm. CBs are one, which wasn't a DuPont product, um, but Teflon and one of the chemicals that DuPont purchased from 3M to make it um, kind of are part of that larger story. Um, and so it was a very complicated story and it's not a kind of story that you can tell from the holdings in any one archives. In fact, the story mm-hmm. divides across archives. I think seven, six or seven different archives um, I had to kind of call materials from to piece that story together like a puzzle. Um, and so to be able to kind of visit and revisit and visit again and, <laughs> and visit again and again, a digitized archives is huge because you know, as each part of the uh, puzzle that was the final essay came into view, I got new clues about like, oh, all of a sudden this other person seemed really important and I could go back in and there he was in the pages of DuPont magazine sculpting Teflon or something like that. And so, you know, this learning process is so iterative that I don't think I would have been able to get to it if I had come and sat and plunked myself, you know, there for months, you know, I would have been able to puzzle it together because I needed all of these other pieces in place. Um, so it's that iterative, that iterative visiting. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, who else, who can do that? <laughs> you know, with funding or timing or children or COVID or, you know, all of that. So I truly am a big fan of um, and grateful for all, all that work digitizing so much. And, and more continues to be added to the digital collections all the time. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, now, did you make any particularly exciting discoveries, um, say a particular source or document that just made the light bulb or the fireworks go off? Y- yes, in fact, so that essay is a story of um, uh, kind of three different people who were each involved with different companies 
who were involved in the process, in the projects of, of leaving a legacy on purpose, using what ended up being legacy leaving contaminants or, or materials in the process. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that story did not come together until there were three of them, you know, because I had tried to pitch the story with one of them, didn't, didn't fly as a, as a narrative. Um, and it was only in getting the three of them together that the story mm. cohered and was of a narrative that um, you know a magazine would find publishable. So, you know, kind of once I met this character named Dominico Mortalito, who was a, a sculptor hired by Dupont um, to do some of the installations at their 1939 World Fair, mm -hmm. did the story. Um, that I wanted to tell about Westinghouse and about um, some of the early perfluorinated or you know, PFAS chemicals. Did the whole story cohere? Um, and he went on to become a DuPont employee. Um, and so there's kind of quite a bit about him in the magazines. And there's, there's even more about him on site that I couldn't access because I was, I was, um, I was working from home. But but just discovering who he was and being able to kind of pull that thread um, eventually led to the coherence of the whole narrative. So um, it wasn't a smoking gun of a document, but it was his whole profile that I could piece together and then use that lead that I got from there to kind of go through, because there's actually quite a bit about him in the New York Public Library archives. Mm -hmm. um, including some incredible DuPont related photographs that you might want to go get um, that I could kind of then go back to those archives and work with them again. And just so the story just deepened and further. Well, well who was Domenico Montanor and what was his story? Um, well, what I was particularly interested about him was, you know, he, he was, he was, um, is, I don't even know how to pronounce his name. This is the problem with working with archives, right? You <laughs> right. your own pronunciations of things. Um, he um, he was he was a kind of a, a wonderful sculptor who had done some work even in like the subway tiles in New York City and mm -hmm. not brought him on as an installation artist. In fact, I think he did a bunch of installations at the Thirty Nine World's Fair, if I'm not mm -hmm. mistaken. But he was he sculpted this gigantic backlit mural for Dupont, telling the history of chemistry. And what Dupont could make from the trinity of what was it, coal, air, and water, or something like that, as they called it. And it was these giant lucite plastic figures, kind of reenacting the history of chemistry. Mm. And they, lucite is like plexiglass, which is another, mm. name, like more of a branded name from another company. But and um, but they could take on color, and they could be kind of lit from behind. And they were built onto, as I remember, kind of a curved wall. I mean, like the engineering capacity of this would not have been possible without plastics. Mm -hmm. So he became known for being kind of working with this new medium um, and, and what he could create with it. So he was later brought on to DuPont. I, I believe he consulted on kind of colors and paints, <laughs> but when Teflon came along, he, he was given the chance to, to sculpt it and carve it like like a block of marble. Um, and I think I read in one of the DuPont magazines that he was one of the first to do that. Um, so, and I think he also helped develop some of the, 
marketing campaigns. Apparently there's a guy named Mr. Teflon that he helped design, though I couldn't find pictures of it remotely. I really tried. Um, but I, I became particularly interested with him in him because after DuPont, or maybe towards the end of his time at DuPont in the late 60s, he sculpted a beautiful piece that's at the Copeland Sculpture Gardens in Delaware. Um, sorry, I'm keeping my dog active with pencils. This is probably bad dog on the um, and it was, I forget what the name of the piece was called, but it was something, I think it was called Protecting Future Generations. And that piece really struck me because it's this, this piece of an adult kind of, kind of hovering over a small child, kind of holding kind of these gargoyles at bay. And I thought it was a very instructive piece to have come from someone who had been inside um, industrial chemistry for so long and understood its benefits, but also its consequences. Mm. Um, and so I became fascinated with that piece again, because here was someone who worked with legacy leading materials, trying to do, trying to do some art that was to be a different kind of legacy and that it was not sculpted out of Teflon or Lucite. It was sculpted out of stone. Mm. Um, so that's the kind of that narrative art was what fascinated me about him. Well, how then do plastics or synthetic materials go from uh, a medium of creation, creativity, uh, to um, something that's inside our bodies and in circulating in our ecosystem? Yeah, I mean, um... Well, kind of playing off the Teflon, the Teflon story, you know, one of the chemicals that made um, the Teflon process, I'm not going to say possible, um, because they were able, I mean, the kind of early DuPont engineers were making it before the addition of the chemical we now know of as PFOA, PFOA or fluoroctanoic acid. Um, but it certainly eased the process of Teflon's polymerization, Teflon being... Mm in some of its applications are plastic. And so, you know, a chemical like PFOA, um, I call a plastic helpmate. It was a polymerization aid. Um, so when I was doing my dissertation work at Brown, um, PFOA was one of the chemicals I had studied um, because uh, 70,000 people living outside the DuPont plant there had had their blood submitted uh, for analysis for this chemical. Mm. Um, and so, you know, it had been used by DuPont for 50 decades to polymerize Teflon uh, at its Washington Works plant near Parkersburg on the Ohio River. And then, but it wasn't needed in the final product. And so it was released. Um, and so it became part of the drinking water supply and uh, part of the part of the bodies of those living from those drinking water mm -hmm. supplies. So, um, I had been you know, studying PFOA since probably 2005 and really wanted to understand where it came from. Like, what does it mean for a body to harbor it? I mean, even as scientists were kind of working to figure out what it means for human health, um, as a sociologist, I was looking at it as kind of what does it mean to kind of harbor history as you know, kind of a traces of history of a 20th mm -hmm. century you know, innovation. Um, 
And so I said, well, if, if it's going to be in the body, but I, I wanted to know where it came from and why it was here um, and how it came to be and what were the geopolitical circumstances of its development. Um, and so that's what led me into that essay project that went on into uh, Eon. Mm. Um, so that's like one very specific answer to your question and not a general answer, but I don't know. One example, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, are there any perhaps implications for uh, public policy that we might draw from your work? Well, meaning, think- meaning, um, meaning um, this relationship between plastics and human bodies and the rest of the natural world um, must be regulated in some way uh, to protect those involved. Um, so, uh, which is to say to uh, mitigate against the negative consequences um, from industrial chemistry. So um, are there perhaps some implications for how best to do so? I mean, it's a pretty, uh, I mean, the ways that I'm thinking about this now, I mean, and specific to kind of PFOA, I mean, you know, DuPont took it out of its process. Um, it's been addressed at the level of the United Nations, but what has happened since then is a series of kind of um, substitutions that uh, you know I think scientists mm-hmm. and scientists are suggesting um, are have complications of their own. And so, when I think of plastics, I don't just think of you know the actual you know, material itself that we use. I think of like the network of integrated plants that made this color plastic with these properties possible. So that includes right. kind of like a whole um, series of plants producing other petrochemicals that, you know, that make plastics additive. And so, you know, to, to kind of think about kind of human health and bodies, occupational health, community health is to kind of understand kind of that whole, kind of whole process uh, and that kind of leads to plastics production. Um, and so kind of any, any toxics um, policy, you know, the, it's very bumbly and badly. Um, Quite all right. What I mean to say is it's, it's kind of to, to deal with plastics as a problem. You can't just deal with the plastics as a waste problem. Mm-hmm. It, it is an, an industrial problem uh, relying on the kind of toxicity of the materials that go into plastics production, I guess, is the way that I want to think about. I want to kind of talk about that today which is not to say that you know, all these single-use plastics are not a problem, they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're also a problem upstream as well. Like mm-hmm. the places where they're produced, all the chemistries that go into making that plastic, um, kind of, these are upstream problems that require mm-hmm. attention at the level of feedstock and production, as well as kind of downstream, fishing them out of the ocean or whatever. Right. Human bodies don't only come into contact with plastics and synthetics as consumers, but in all other aspects of uh, our lives and as occupants of the planet. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, And so, you know, in terms of kind of the ways that I'm currently thinking about this is kind of this is are these linkages between kind of these things that I thought, you know, originally had thought of as like isolated pollutants, you know, because we mm. tend to tackle pollutants one at a time. PFOA and then PFOA's replacement and then the PCB and then the flame, you know, other flame. 
instead of them being kind of part of a, a broader category of production mm. that is, a, you know, set up to kind of support plastics production. Um, it's kind of all of a piece and it's a much more integrated system. And so how do we think about the materials that are, you know, that make up our, our modern lives and how are they connected and how do mm. they all share kind of the same root as byproducts of oil or gas production? Mm -hmm. um, but I think the other thing to think about is, you know, I'm really interested in the kinds of materials that are legacy weaving, that are the kinds of materials that have um, dur the durability as designed and engineered to persist for long time horizons. And now they do. And so mm -hmm. um, what does that mean for design today? Design of molecules and also design of materials made from those molecules can legacy be designed out? Is it possible to create mm. items that are biocompatible and ecologically compatible at the, you know, in their afterlives? Mm. <laughs> or so they don't have after afterlives as well. Right. So there's a design challenge there too. Yeah, and, well, and that's fascinating. And where are you going to take your work next? What's next on your research agenda? Um, what are you working on? Uh, I just finished up a, um, a centennial retrospect on the kind of merger of petroleum and chemistry into petrochemistry. Um, and that's going to run in Orion magazine this summer. Mm. Um, that's all based on archival work using carbide, Union Carbide's documents um, scattered as well. And I also this past year um, signed a contract with Scribner Books and um, and I'm going to work, I'm working on a book, uh, you know, that, that is, that uses this intimate history approach, which is the intersection of biography and um, history, sociology of plastics to tell this bigger story. Uh, and so it is a story of my dad and his, and his years making plastics hmm. and our joint journey together to understand the kind of history and legacy of plastics. Um, and it's also woven in with the, um, the, the, the writings and life of the writer um, Primo Levi, who I think most people associate with the Holocaust, but he was also a, a chemist, a PhD chemist and an industrial chemist. And if you understand polymer science, you would read him as a plastics maker too. He made the kind of plastics that would coat wires. Anyway, so I, I kind of am re have reread his body of work that's translated into English to bring that into the story too. So I have kind of two ways into this story of 20th century plastics through him and my dad a generation later to kind of get, get at this deeper wisdom of what do we learn about plastics by getting to know two people whose lives were tangled up in it for a while. Um, so that's, that's the book I'm currently working on <laughs> that's that's great i can't i uh, can't wait to read it no rush though these things yeah. take time <laughs> it is a hard time to write a book and think big um mm. and the one blessing of it all is all of the archives archivists who um are still working and been very kind to me sending <laughs> sending me things remotely um it's all possible because of archivists i keep a running list of all of the archives and researchers that have helped me work over the past year. Well, thank you so much for uh, speaking with me today and sharing your work with us. Oh, it was a pleasure. Thank you for 
pulling me out of my rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> sure. And um, um, uh, to the audience, if you'd like more Hagley History Hangouts, more information on the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society, and our research grants and fellowships, why don't you join us online? Visit hagley.org. That's H-A-G-L-E-Y.org. Don't be a stranger.